There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. My name is Zach Twomley and you are listening to the latest episode of the Franco-Dutch War. If this is your first time listening to us, thanks for stopping by. And don't forget to check out the previous episodes of the Franco-Dutch War because, well, there's 16 of them. So you might be a bit confused if you just jump right in now. If you're just here to see what's what, then thanks for joining us. And I hope I don't scare you away. However, it should be said that this podcast is on Patreon. And if you guys would like to access a super amount of wonderful goodies and loads of other wonderful stuff and wonderful wondrous wonderfulness then check out when diplomacy fails patreon page by going to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails or wdfpodcast.com and click on the patreon banner if you become a diplomat by paying five dollars or more a month then you can access the extra feed which essentially means that you'll get access to loads of exclusive audio content that you wouldn't get anywhere else seriously guys there's so much good stuff that's both there and on the way. So if you're interested, even if you just may be a bit curious in how the whole thing works, check it out. Go to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. It should be added if you're like me and you don't like trying new things or risking things, then don't worry. It's really, really simple to sign up. And it's also really simple to actually get access to the extra feed as well. It's a simple matter of getting the RSS feed and copying it into your well, podcatcher. Do you know what I discovered the other day? That listening to podcasts on my phone is so much easier than listening to podcasts on my iPod. So yeah, I found Podcast Addict and, well, I suppose you could say I'm addicted now and I'm listening to podcasts that I wouldn't have listened to had I still been listening through my iPod because that whole process of downloading them on iTunes, which more often than not decides that it's just going to update itself or crash anyway, then going to the computer, then getting them from the computer to the iPod, then listening to them, then running out, then having to do the same process again. It's very annoying. And doing it through your phone is brilliant. And doing it through your phone is just one of the many ways that you can sign up to the extra feed. Seriously, it's amazing. And I'm so proud of it. I'm so proud of our Patreon page because we're doing super well. Thanks so much to you guys. And thanks to you for listening to this podcast. Remember to be fit if you're thinking of other ways to support us, which don't involve spending any money whatsoever. But other than that, I hope you guys can just kick back and enjoy this episode. As far as episodes go, this is probably one of my favourites of the Franco-Dutch War. So, yeah, I hope you enjoy it. Thanks, and let me know what you thought.
Welcome to the Franco-Dutch War, episode 17. Thanks for joining us for yet another installment of this incredible tale, History Friends. Here we examine exactly why the war with the Dutch was becoming so problematic within Britain, after last time bringing our coverage to mid-1673. By the end of this episode, we will have brought our analysis to spring 1674, when the war had undeniably changed its form from an apparently simple invasion and triumph to a hard long slog of a coalition war with no end in sight. How would the different European powers weigh in on the situation? Well, let's find out as I take you to autumn 1673. The disaffection is so great at this conjuncture with the French that the general speech in the city and that among the soberest and chiefest persons is that unless this alliance with France be broken, the nation will be ruined. Robin Yard, interim editor for the London Gazette, issue on the 8th of September, hard to deny that the gamble had failed. Charles II of Britain had arguably been the most important driving force behind the Anglo-French alliance, and certainly the most vengeful of the two monarchs, but by autumn 1673 it was becoming apparent that the once glorious agreement was harming his kingdoms rather than benefiting them. To accept this meant to accept that a policy engineered literally since the Dutch had burned their way up the Thames in July 1667, had gone up in smoke. It meant accepting that the years of supreme effort on Charles's part, of his scheming, his hours of persuasion and reams of letters, not to mention his grand ambitions and sincere hopes, had all been for naught. It simply couldn't be done. The war against the Dutch had manifestly been transformed from a rapid blitz-like invasion to a war of bitter and expensive attrition, largely now on land. Though Charles had lent some men to his cousin Louis, he could not break the deadlock. It wasn't so much that the Dutch had flooded their lands in desperation, or that they had rallied, brutally though the process may have been behind a strong leader. No, what Charles truly appreciated, perhaps more than Louis and his ministers, was the fact that the war couldn't continue because the war was widening. It was growing into the kind of war where no benefits could be discerned and no end was in sight. The Spanish, the Holy Roman Emperor and Brandenburg all joined the fray through a series of curious and complicated understandings, which essentially meant that by the end of October 1673, France was at war with both branches of the Habsburg family and Brandenburg. It was no longer a glorious invasion, it was now a ruinous slog, a conflict so potentially devastating and widespread that it hadn't been seen since the Thirty Years' War. Charles, that historians would come to understand, had reached the point in the conflict where the Franco-Dutch War became something else entirely different from its original form. The first phase, after much lagging along, 
had undoubtedly ended and a new, more total phase began. With the ending of the first phase of the war ended also Charles's best opportunities for plunder, quick victory, or indeed a popular campaign in general. The options were now reduced to maintaining the war at a distinct disadvantage, while England's foreign policy became more isolated by the week, or to make a quick peace with the Dutch in the following spring, enabling London to cut its losses and repair the damage wrought by the war. Neither option, as we can see, was particularly appealing to the 43-year-old king, who had once been so full of ambition, so bright and eager to prove himself, so determined and confident in his chances for success. Charles also appreciated that pretty soon the decision would be out of his hands. To continue the war he needed more money, but Parliament had chafed immensely since 1671, when Charles effectively lied to their faces in order to get a grand series of subsidies. Turning this money against the Dutch rather than investing it into the Triple Alliance, as the MPs had expected, the King then appealed to them in the spring of 1673, and he was only successful then because those MPs present feared a repeat of the events of July 1667. The money granted was enough to keep the English effort ticking over, but Charles could effectively maintain no independent actions and those efforts that were made were greatly undermined by the Dutch victories at sea. Although the Dutch victories were by no means spectacular, they did keep London at bay and provide a foil to the idea that war would be easy in the winning, or that the Dutch themselves had no heart to fight. As we saw, arguably the best opportunities the Dutch had for victory were at sea, and while Prince William directed Admiral de Ruyter to attack rather than preserve his fleet, the perceptive prince also understood the value in driving the wedge between the two royal cousins. Thus instructed to attack and divide the Anglo-French fleet in the Battle of the Texel, de Ruyter overcame the odds, inflicting a demoralising defeat on the combined naval resources of the Bourbons and Stuarts. As William had hoped, the story after the battle in London wasn't so much the Dutch victory, but the French abandonment of the English during their time of need. As proud nations are wont to do, a scapegoat was needed to explain the uninspiring English performance and France was the convenient excuse. The French had ignored the signals of the commanding English admiral, Prince Rupert of the Rhine. They had abandoned the prince, they had fled after becoming separated rather than press home their advantage in numbers. This, rather than Dutch skill, tenacity or experience, they said, had caused the English to suffer a loss. Again, as William had hoped, this experience proved a boon to the anti-French camp of opinion in Britain, which was growing rapidly at the time. Now this party finally had a concrete piece of evidence, which they could uphold as proof of the French perfidy. Now they could form, as Charles no doubt appreciated, a considerable opposition to his designs. The theory behind why Britain became more anti-French in tone as the war went on isn't as simple to explain as you might expect. It wasn't really the case that the British people recognised that the balance of power would be shot if France was aided in its quest to overrun its neighbours. A combination of factors, with two in particular being the most important, can be pointed to to explain the anti-French trend. First we have to remember the importance of religion and religious feeling, and the extent to which it still held a place in English hearts and minds, despite what people might tell you about the Peace of Westphalia ending all these things after 1648. Catholicism, or popery as it was termed when describing scheming Catholics in particular, remained the bugbear of British sensibilities, 
and these fears were aggravated thanks to the rampant tales of Catholic excesses and the conversion of James, the Duke of York, not to mention a number of Catholic ministers that Charles had in his employ. These high-profile conversions painted a picture of a latent conspiracy deep within the bowels of the British governing system. With such fears in place, it became easier to believe the still more insidious rumours that the war was being waged, not against the Dutch, but against Protestantism, and that Charles was merely a tool of this Catholic French king, who himself had ambitions for universal Catholic monarchy that would tame the entirety of the West. Charles's declaration of indulgence on the eve of the war hadn't helped these fears. In fact, they had massaged them into something which the king could no longer dismiss. Charles's behaviour and his apparent disregard for the constitution, seen in his efforts to install Catholics in privileged positions or ignore institutions like Parliament or the judges when bringing new acts into force, also inflamed passions. Yet again, this doesn't solely explain the shift in sentiment from anti-Dutch to anti-French. Stephen Pincus's article on this shift in fact explained the situation best by autumn 1673 when he noted that By the later 17th century, most English people understood popery as a means of instituting arbitrary government. Popery was the religion of 17th century Baroque monarchies. The panic about popery grew out of fears of a French universal monarchy rather than the other way around. In other words, British subjects wouldn't have felt such fear and loathing towards popery if they didn't see an all-powerful, triumphant and absolute monarch towering over Europe in the person of Louis XIV. Louis embodied all that the British people feared about the universal monarchy nightmare. He was the only person, after all, capable of fulfilling these fears, because he was the only monarch powerful enough or Catholic enough to consider taking over the continent in the name of the old religion. At least, that's how the British people saw. Catholics weren't a danger per se, but if they received the moral or practical support of foreign potentates, such as the King of France, then suddenly these Catholic subjects could emerge from the woodwork, safe in the knowledge that such a figure would support them in their cause, and that through that figure's power, the dominion under the universal monarch would be guaranteed. Thus, you could argue that the popular British fear combined Catholicism and the King of France. Neither object alone seemed enough to promote much fears, but combined, the joint threat of a foreign takeover mixed with a hidden fifth column was too much to bear. And all these concerns, while London persisted in its war alongside such a supremely powerful figure. It wasn't merely the case of the balance of power in the strategic sense as we would recognise it, but in a religious and psychological sense as well. Louis XIV wasn't a threat because he aspired to universal monarchy, the idea of the West under one man, as had been seen with Philip II, or more accurately Charles V before him, but because he could empower those elements within Britain to aid him in his quest. Such aid, the British people were coming to suspect, was being readily granted not just from the disparate Catholics, but from the highest levels of the crown from the king's brother to his ministers, and perhaps even the king himself. At the same time, though, these fears required a certain figure to fulfil them. It wouldn't do for the relationship with Louis to continue, but there was no reason other Catholic potentates couldn't be courted, or, as was the case with Charles's brother James, 
married. When James was on the lookout for a second Catholic wife, the idea that the Duke of York might marry a Catholic Habsburg was, in fact, widely supported. Pincus explained that. The first nominee was the Archduchess of Innsbruck, a Catholic member of the House of Habsburg. Far from eliciting cries of, it was, publicly hoped that the marriage would soon be concluded, in the words of a contemporary. The moderate Edmund Verney wrote to his father full of enthusiasm for the prospect, nor did Parliament disapprove. The negotiations for the Innsbruck marriage were well known. Gilbert Burnett later marvelled, and yet no address was made to the king to hinder the dukes marrying a papist. It was only after the negotiations for the Innsbruck marriage fell through, the Archduchess chose to marry the Holy Roman Emperor instead, that the Duke of York selected the Duchess of Medina. The marriage was immediately unpopular. I know what you're thinking. Why was it okay to marry one Catholic woman and not another? Well, the reason for all the hate towards the 15-year-old Duchess of Medina wasn't because of the girl's family pedigree or even her religion, but because of her association and the belief that she had been the favourite choice of Louis, while the Archduchess had been the choice of Spain when it came to choosing who James should marry. The Venetian ambassador commented on the ordeal that, The opposition to the Modenese marriage proceeded from the princess being the nominee of France and not of Spain, like the Archduchess of Innsbruck. Fear of France was probably more inherently important than fear of Catholic designs, but it was because both fears seemed to come in a terrifying package that the British people came to identify France, conveniently led at this time by its most supreme monarch in historical memory, that the anti-French sentiment overcame those of a formerly anti-Dutch variety. Of course, it must be added that a great boon to the anti-French camp was the widespread smuggling of Dutch pamphlets into Britain. The Dutch propagandists were rightly feared in Whitehall for the potential impact they could have on public opinion, and indeed the availability of information within the Netherlands in comparison to the sole source in the London Gazette contributed to this belief. The Dutch were meddling, they were scheming, but above all they were well-read and proficient in the art of subversion through words. By engineering the written works that helped British people connect the dots as to the conspiracy they saw around them, the Dutch element was a crucial final piece in this puzzle. It helped connect Louis XIV with British fears of domination through the twin evils of popery and military force, and it exposed the naked ambition which had inspired Charles's agreements with the French king in the first place, and brought Britain to make war on the only power in Europe, the Dutch, that stood a chance against Paris. Armed with this information, many MPs were, by autumn 1673, in doubts about what they should do. One figure who will likely be familiar to you, William Temple, in many senses the architect of the Triple Alliance, noted himself that, Foreign alliances are to be secured with respect to the balance of monarchy and obviating that design for universal monarchy. Therefore, not only Protestants, but all who are on a distinct foot as the Portugal, the Catholic princes of Germany, Dutch, Italian princes not dependent on Spain, nay the Pope himself, and the prince are to be united in this common bottom. Temple's sentiments would later be invested to full effect when he negotiated the marriage between the daughter of James, Mary, to Prince William of Orange. 
But such arrangements were, in 1673, faint mirages in the international system. What mattered above all to statesmen such as Temple was Britain's detachment from arrangements which directly jeopardised its interests. None was more jeopardising an arrangement than that which endured between the King of England and the King of France, and thus he, along with many of his political allies, would be arguing for the termination both of said partnership and the war once Parliament resumed in spring 1674. It was very difficult to remain anti-Dutch so long as the Netherlands rallied against the irresistible French invasion, only halting it through the inundation of their lands. How could the Dutch, after all, be aspiring to the universal monarchy that they had once been accused of, when they were evidently too busy fighting for their own survival? It just didn't seem credible. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. ...anymore, even while the Dutch more than held their own at sea. On top of this, when the DeWitts were massacred in August 1672, it's still too soon, Charles appreciated that the scorn and unpopularity of his regime in England would be replaced by a new regime led by a potential heir to the British throne, as the Dutch people placed their lives and fortunes at Prince William's disposal. Upon this, thus rid of their republican regime, the Dutch seemed also to have rid themselves of their threatening ambitions to universal monarchy. This more honourable ruler in William was easier to understand. He was easier to admire, of course, because he was fighting desperately against France, and he seemed to pose no threat to British monetary interests. William's ascension, in other words, seemed to flip a switch in the British psyche. The Dutch were suddenly no longer aspiring to universal monarchy through coin. Now they had returned to their militarist, orangist roots. Such a state was to be courted in the struggle against France, not feared. Evidently, the growing Francophobia in Britain and the admiration of the Dutch had been invested with the lies of the orangists and arguably even of Charles himself. So heavily had Charles reinforced the idea in the past that 
London waged war merely to topple the regime of De Witt, that when that figure was finally removed, a great pillar had apparently been toppled. In both countries, it immediately seemed as though less issues separated them than had before. The final death knell, though, was the aforementioned French betrayal during the two key naval battles, first at Sol Bay in June 1672, and then at the Texel in August 1673. The clear apprehension of the French to hold up their side of the bargain was pilloried by both the returning sailors and the British people who, for their part, knew next to nothing about it. Of course, such events were then picked up by the Dutch pamphleteers and shipped across the Channel, as the fears and outrage of the British citizens were captured and connected to the events on the continent. It's now strange logic time, history friends, as one of the great abilities of the Dutch pamphleteer was to connect French apathy here with French apathy during the Second Anglo-Dutch War, which I realise feels like decades ago now. But if you remember the French intervention in that war as part of the Franco-Dutch defensive alliance, meant of course that England was at war with both states, so you might suspect that when Dutch pamphleteers tried to argue that this was an example of additional French insincerity and dishonesty in international affairs, they would be told to get stuffed. Surely the British people would argue that it was a good thing that the full force of France wasn't invested against England during the French intervention against England in 1666-67. to On the contrary though, not only was the lacklustre French investment in that war held up as a previous example of French perfidy, but the Dutch were made into the sympathetic figure in that example. The poor Dutch, let down by their so-called ally just as we are being let down here. There didn't seem to be much awareness that French inaction during the Second Anglo-Dutch War had been of benefit to the British war effort, or that the poor, discarded Dutch had actually been Britain's enemy during that conflict. Would the British people have been happier if the Dutch had launched an invasion of Britain during the course of that war effort? At least then the French couldn't be accused of not taking their alliances seriously. The populists say that the French have not served England better than they did Holland the last time they succoured her, noted the Venetian secretary. Strange though the logic may have been, the idea that these two wronged and abandoned powers in the Anglo-Dutch should now partner together themselves was slowly emerging. Great and rational hopes are builded here upon a league with the House of Austria and some princes of Germany who fear the French king's designs towards the universal monarchy of Christendom, Temple said. "'Tis beyond my skill to describe the disorder the people were in here upon the not-fighting of the French in the last battle," exclaimed Sir Thomas Player. "'The citizens of London looked more disconsolate when their city lay in ashes.' To many more MPs and statesmen, the French abandonment of their ally at sea wasn't simply due to laziness or hesitation, instead it was part of a French plan to goad the Anglo-Dutch fleets into destroying one another so that Louis could capitalise and reign as a sovereign of the sea as well as the land. Thus would the universal monarchy be even more heavily reinforced. Therefore, for the sake of the balance of power at sea as much as at land, further engagements with the Dutch must be avoided so the anti-French opinion claimed, as if prophetically ushering in the new attitude of Britain towards its own foreign policy, which is more popular today, Pincus concluded that English moderates shifted their foreign policy orientation not because they feared the revival of Catholicism at home, but because they were well aware that the struggle for European mastery 
had begun. And this struggle was, many in the anti-French camp insisted, only complete when joined by England, yet at this moment she was on the wrong side. Surely it made no sense for Britain to continue its war against the beleaguered Dutch when Louis was able to field three large armies and hold the Republic, effectively to ransom all at the same time. The invasion of the Netherlands may not have succeeded, but the Prince of Orange was manifestly unable to overcome the power of France alone. He needed help. That this help came from the other powers in Europe may have jarred with the British idea of always siding against the stronger power for the sake of a sense of balance. But it also created an image or aura around the person of William of Orange, which in certain parts of the world today, in certain organisations specifically, continues to form an inherent part of its identity. If Louis was the champion of Catholicism, then William's tenacious resilience and fierce refusal to hand his country to the Catholic Anglo-French catapulted him to the position of champion of Protestantism. It was a huge relief, of course, that such a champion should emerge, and while those that exhibited anti-French sentiments certainly appreciated that William and his story of brave resistance could only be a good thing for others in need of such inspiration, these statesmen looked in on themselves and their own monarch and wondered at what might have been. Charles II was in no position to stand as the champion of Protestantism so long as he retained such a pro-French bias. Added to this was the well-known influx of French subjects who filtered into Britain with every passing week. The court were said to be pro-French, Buckingham's sentiments were especially emphasised, while Charles's unfortunate decision to take a French mistress in 1671 continued to haunt him. Like the case had been with James's choice of wife, this new mistress Louise was believed to be the pick of the Sun King, and she was rumoured to regularly request political favours from Charles in return for her services, while passing state secrets onto the French. In such an atmosphere, William epitomised the defiant, youthful, pure and energetic stand against a Catholic tyrant, while Britain possessed a monarch who was sleazy, who was weak-willed and easily manipulated by the opposite sex, not to mention under the thumb of his more enigmatic cousin. William was everything his uncle Charles was not, as we learned when the two men met awkwardly in late 1670, but to many in the anti-French camp in Britain, he was also everything that they wanted. Already it seemed the seeds were being sown for the young prince's ascension to his uncle's throne. The glorious revolution was, in some ways at least, already underway. That Charles was not evicted or indeed executed as his father had been had much to do with the influence of those that insisted neither England nor its king were to blame for what had befallen either the Dutch or British people. No, no, it was not our fault, you see. The Sun King made us do it, or at least the Sun King tricked us into doing it. Thus emerged yet another strand of excuse-making in late 1673, which, you won't be surprised to learn, cast Louis XIV in a still more negative light. Another element of the pervading French influence, which the Francophobes in Britain saw everywhere, was the tacit French use of money and culture to advance its position. Britain was so susceptible because its monarch had been taken with these gifts, and many too had fallen victim to them. One playwright of the era wrote, A curse on these French cheats. They begin to be as rife amongst us as their country disease, and do almost as much mischief too. No corner without French tailors, weavers, milliners, strong watermen, perfumers and surgeons. 
common play, much like the pamphlet, had the effect of reinforcing the beliefs which many of the people already held, and in order to appeal to these beliefs, playwrights would often create ridiculously over-the-top French antagonists, whom the Englishman, in question in this play, could only overcome by embracing his individuality and spurning the gaudy French fashion sense. It was a bizarre but also revealing aspect of the increasing anti-French sentiment. One character in a play, The English Monsieur, itself recreated from an older version of a 1660s play, cast a man called Mr. French Love, I'm not even joking, as its villain, and this figure declared, one imagines to a chorus of boos, No English man that does not absolutely abandon his dull English nature can ever be a competent judge of the fitting of tops or the garniture of clothes or the mounting of feathers and all other things of this kind that belong to the judgment of a right French accomplished person. (laughs) Yep, so ingrained was the belief that the French were essentially invading Britain in all but name, one playwright described it, and I'm not even joking again, as the universal monarchy for clothes that France would supersede Britain in culture and fashion if she could not invade her as she had the Dutch. Such were the designs of France on the governing of the Western world, and yet this enemy was continually aided by their very sovereign, who was meant to be acting in their best interests. Where once Charles had intervened with glee in Dutch domestic politics, proving in the end false the idea that he merely followed along Louis' lead as an inactive monarch during the period, William now sought to effect a change in Britain. We've seen already how the change in sentiment towards the anti-French variety grew with the murder of the De Witts, the struggle of the Dutch Republic in the face of French aggression, and with French abandonment during the two major combined naval battles. But it is also worth examining William's active role in furthering these sentiments. As Charles had fanned the flames of the Orangists against De Witts' regime, so too did William co-opt some of the most brilliant of Orangist and Republican propagandists to turn the tide of public opinion firmly against Britain. So effective were William's efforts, aided as he was by skilled writers such as Pierre de Moulin, that British government propaganda pieces were effectively ignored, while William's pamphlets, for example one called England's Appeal from the Private Cabal at Whitehall to the Great Council of the Nation, sold like hotcakes, in the words of the historian C.R. Boxer. The popularity of the Dutch pamphlets many months after they'd been published demonstrated the identification many British people felt with the Dutch position. William may not have seen it as giving his uncle the measure of comeuppance for his previous scheming and dissemination of lies, Charles's most notable one being the idea that the Anglo-Dutch war would stop if the Republican regime was removed, as England waged war against the regions only. However, the Dutch victory here was certainly in the region of what Charles had once excelled at, and by capitalising on the profoundly unpopular policy, it was apparent, as 1674 dawned, that William had beaten Charles at his own game. Pincus provides us with a great conclusion to his article, which you may have noticed I've drawn heavily on for this episode, when he wrote, The only way to prevent a French universal monarchy, the only means to circumvent the domestic implications of French cultural hegemony, was to govern in a distinctly English way. Policy, especially foreign policy, needed to promote the national interest. Decisions to go to war, because they necessarily determined England's ideological orientation, needed to be made in public and not behind closed doors. 
While the publication history of many of the tracts advocating a reorientation of English foreign policy might be the stuff of cloak-and-dagger thrillers, the cultural significance of the pamphlets themselves was very public. They convinced most English men and women that the government was pursuing a perverse foreign policy. As a result, the political nation, manifested in the National Assembly, sought not merely to compel the king to break the present alliance with France, but to bind him for the future to acquaint them with his intentions about the war, although hitherto such matters have always depended on his majesty's will as a prerogative of the crown. From the 17th of January to the 4th of March 1674, Parliament met with Charles in attendance. In the exhausting trials which followed, the king did all he could to resist his MP's calls to break with France, and implemented several delaying tactics, but all in vain. He could no longer persuade his peers of anything, and the MPs here had increasingly come to see Charles's prerogative to wage war as he pleased as a dangerous entitlement. Such were the feelings that Charles, once welcomed so eagerly back home in 1660 and able to lead his people so enthusiastically to war in 1665, had led his country astray through his control on foreign policy, and now it was time that this control was effectively taken away from him. The Third Anglo-Dutch War thus holds the distinction of being the final war waged by a king without due consolation with his parliament in Britain. On the 19th of February 1674, the Treaty of Westminster was signed between Britain and the Dutch, and this was ratified by Parliament rapidly afterwards. By the 4th of March 1674, with the treaty ratified and the war effectively concluded, it was clear that Britain's third attempt at humbling the Dutch had come to an abrupt end. Charles had entered into the arrangement with his cousin with the highest of hopes and the greatest of ambitions, but... Now, to the palpable dismay of Louis XIV, Charles had effectively been forced by his own people to make peace. It was a climb-down, an anticlimax, and arguably, at least in some sense of the word, a humiliation. Charles II would never wage war again. Across the narrow sea, the news that their old foe had agreed to peace prompted joyous scenes in Amsterdam. Never before had such great marks and demonstrations of joy been given in this town, recalled one visitor. Everyone kept open house, all the people rejoiced, and although wine was then rather expensive, never was so much drunk in so short a time. The significance of the peace treaty was unmistakable. Just as Louis's list of allies was shrinking, so was the number of allies the Dutch could call on growing. On the 28th of May 1674, the imperial diet of the Holy Roman Empire declared war on France, thus ending any sense of uncertainty which Leopold may have espoused about the Holy Roman Empire's general position in the conflict. There was to be no quick peace, as the English and Dutch had enjoyed. With the Imperial Diet's declaration of war, a signal was pinged out to all German princes and potentates within the empire, that France and the person of Louis XIV was to be seen as their enemy, and that all efforts had to be made to combat the French military complex which seemed poised to threaten Europe. Yet it also signalled something else. When the war began, few could have imagined where it would have taken a small republic in the corner of Europe, whose independence had seemed so threatened, and whose enemies appeared so destined to destroy it. Now it was clear she had survived. Buoyed and encouraged by her growing list of allies, it now remained to refocus their attentions not merely on resisting the French, but taking the fight to them and their king. 
With that, it was clear that the signal had been received. It was not merely a declaration that the Germans were to make war on France. It was a declaration that the first phase of the war had definitively ended. While it remained to see how the next phase would progress, it was now certain that the Dutch Republic and William of Orange would not have to face their trials and tribulations alone. Okay guys, I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and before we skedaddle, it's only fair that we read out the patrons for this podcast. And those patrons are, starting with, starting from the 2nd of April, Peter H., Diplomat, Derek U., Envoy Extraordinaire, Stuart K., Diplomat, Michael VDW, Embassy Intern, James L., Diplomat, David K., Diplomat, Jeremiah T. Diplomat and a diplomat who just made it in time, Robin K. Thanks to all of you for signing up and supporting this podcast this week, guys. I super, super appreciate it. And it's great to see the bank of diplomats grow because it means that all of you guys are going to get some pretty awesome goodies. In fact, those patrons who I sent out the care package to last week or so should be getting them around now. I've received a few confirmations that they have in fact gotten their swag as they call it i know sorry about that i know i know but they received their merchandise and they're happy with it and they're telling people about it they're talking about it and that's what matters so thanks very much guys all you diplomats all you patrons however much you give whenever you give it or for whatever reason you decide to give it for i really really appreciate it and remember this is the best way to make this podcast grow and thus make history thrive. So thanks very much. You're doing me a service and you're doing the discipline of history a service too. Alrighty, thanks for listening. This has been When Diplomacy Fails, the Franco-Dutch War. And I'll see you guys soon. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.